Welcome to the Story Forward podcast. We are episode four of season two playlist stories from the world of music. Uh, we are your hosts. I, of course, am Larry Rosen, he of the plaid shirt and resonant voice. He is Christian Wynn. I am Christian Wynn. My voice is not quite so resonant. It's a little gravelly, gravelly, and I'm wearing a Yes, your yes, yeah, a t-shirt with a with an elephant with a scarf on it, which is from Banana Republic. So it's still, you know, it's kind of bougie. Really? It's medium bouge. Your shirt is not nearly as plaid. He, of course, is the co-founder and director of the Story Fort Arts, Music, Literary Festival. Okay, yeah. just Literary Festival. Yeah. I was giving you all the Tree Fort stuff because I know you deserve it. Uh, this week, our guest is the very delightful Ma Shane Wynn. When we interviewed her, I sent a text to my friend Bridget and said, I don't know how my day can get any better. It's all downhill. <laughs> yep, I know. I, I, that was how you closed it out for us after we got off the air. She got off the air. And it was a great day, I remember. Very well. It was about two weeks ago, and it was one of the better days of 2021. Now, if you're not familiar with Ma Shane Wynn's work, she is a Bay Area poet. Uh, she has published four books, two chapbooks, Ruins of a Glittering Palace and Score and Bone. Um, you know, I'm not as uh, familiar with the difference between a chapbook and an actual book of poetry. You may be, so can you mm -hmm. tell us the difference? Because her next two books are not chapbooks, they're just books. Well, it's it, it's a little bit dicey. It's kind of like the novella versus the novelette versus the novel. But I, I take it as a chapbook is usually a shorter collection of poetry link kind of is working together. But you know, it's just not a full full collection. I, and I, I'm just gonna say it's a little shorter version, sometimes a little bit more zine like sometimes a little bit more book art like so That's, that was my sense a little more DIY. Well, regardless, in 2018, she published Invisible Gifts poems. And in 2020, she published Storage Unit for the Spirit House, which has been, let me run down these uh, awards it's eligible for, longlisted for the Pan America Open Book Award, longlisted for the Northern California Book Award for Poetry, shortlisted for the Guard Golden Poppy Awards. She, uh, in spring 2021, was a poetry fellow at UC Berkeley. 2019, she was a visiting scholar in poetry at UC Berkeley, and from 2016 to 2018, she was the City of El Cerrito's Poet Laureate. That's pretty sweet. Uh, and tell us, where, well, where is El Cerrito and why? El Cerrito is an East Bay city north of Berkeley. She was the first ever, actually. They had never done that before. Oh. And I, I think if I remember right, you and her talk a little bit about that and compare it to your experience as the Idaho Writer-in-Residence. We do. Yeah. It's it's an honor to do that kind of stuff, to be kind of like people think you're fancy when you go around, you're you know, representing a city or a state. Um, yeah. I guess, you know, we got a little fancy to us. But yeah, that's it's really an honor to do that and put other generally, you know, put your own voice out there, but really help out, put others on stage um, was now, part of what she talks about. Yeah, you've known her for some time in San Francisco. She was also a member of the San Francisco Writers Crowder, and I've interviewed her uh, a couple times. But, you know, if Ma Shaman was only a poet, that would be enough. But if she is only a poet, she wouldn't have been on this podcast. She also has an extensive background in music. And in fact, is in three bands right now that I just really, I really encourage you to go online to YouTube and look them up. They're it's crazy stuff. It's very avant-garde. She does Pitta of the Mine with Amanda Chaudhary. Uh, she does Vada and the Vine with Evan Karp, who's sort of this man about town uh, bookseller writer in San Francisco. And with her husband, she's working on something called, um, is it called Kofa and its kind? I can't read my own handwriting here, which is not a good sign. It's a sign of aging. Anyways. <laughs> but, yeah, but there is a theremin involved. I know that much. So you have yeah. that to look forward to. And there's a lot of, there's movement. There's just like a, a very funky, cool vibe. So it's, it's, I mean, Ma's a real artist. She is a real deal. And we talked to her a lot about her involvement in the LA, I guess punk scene is, yeah, punk scene mm -hmm. is the right way to put it in the 70s. Yeah. And being in a band in the early 80s, I want to say, late 70s, early 80s, which was more of a new wave art rock band. Living in, what did she call her house? I can't remember, but living in a big art house and just yeah. a great, just sort of a slice of life of that period, a period which, I, I mean, I think both of us, I was a little closer to it because I lived down there. But as I told Ma when she mentioned the name of a punk rock club, 
did I go? They're like, no, I was terrified. Are you kidding? <laughs> He's a, a five foot zero. No, that's charitable. She's shorter. Than, <laughs> I'm sorry, Ma. She's, she's smaller than five feet. She is tiny. She's a small person, like, but she is mighty. And she was like, <laughs> not effing around, right? I mean, when she would go into these clubs. And why wouldn't you go? Were you, is it just, was it just too. Why didn't I go? You're tough. You were. I was scared. Are you kidding me? I'm scared people. <laughs> go to those places um she wasn't scared you know and i think we t- I talked to her about this a little bit too at the time it wasn't until recently in watching a bunch of retrospectives that i realized that the punk rock world is, was easily as much about being a misfit as it was about being tough they were all misfits as you know i, I don't really have the uh, the internal makeup to be punk per se because i'm not that angry it's a little i was a sadder teenager so it was a little more emo uh mm-hmm. than any of that but um, what I wanted to ask you, though, before we go into Ma's interview, which I really encourage you all to just relax and listen to, because she is just so delightful. You'll feel, but you'll be smiling. I guarantee you, you'll be smiling yes. at the end. You know, we talked to Ma a lot about, well, not a lot, but part of the interview is set aside for talking about how all of this experience in music has informed her work as a poet. And I, you know, I dabbled with music. You have not, but not you so listen much. to a ton of music, and I know it's very important to you. Mm-hmm. So how and obviously otherwise we wouldn't be doing a whole season of podcasts with that as a probably theme. not yeah does it inform your writing absolutely yeah it it, it has for years i'm i am somebody who writes often while listening to music which some people aren't Ooh, really good at you. no i listen and i maybe it's not that interesting but a little like i'm gonna say jazz inspired to a degree i don't know if it's inspired by jazz music but the process of writing prose poetry and poetry especially first drafts listening to music and like picking up on certain turns of phrase turns of you know sort of um i guess music phrasing as well as actually lyrical phrasing and just picking up on some of that with the mood i'm trying to get on the page and just kind of letting it go it's a little bit of i don't know what we want to free form scat let it fly and then go back in and I reshape stuff later ideally if I like the piece which I sometimes kind of don't and then then it's better way better when I get back in and get the get the feel again but I mean fans going way back in the last episode or was it the episode before I was talking about the Manchester scene back in the late 80s early 90s um and that music back when I was an undergrad and um listening to that shoegazy sort of Brit pop stuff that definitely influenced my mood a lot and my mode of like putting it on the page, people like Elvis Costello or Mark, Mark Eidsel, Julian Welsh, or he's Gillian Welsh, excuse me. Um, I've, been, I've been corrected at the bar fight. At the, I, Libby, right. Libby and Julie shattered me down for that. Gillian, <laughs> oh, but you know, just lyrically, I, I mean, I'm not a person who listens to a lot of music that is without words or without lyrics and or... As a writer, I mean, I just don't like dumb lyrics. I guess they are just very simple. So I, I mean, you know, something that's smart, clever, and poetic um, without being heavy-handed. Anyway, that is all to say that it highly influenced by music on, on a mood and just, um, I don't know, line-by-line level. It's a little more difficult with fiction for me to listen to music. Usually I listen to music beforehand maybe in between when I take a break and then afterwards, but it's hard to keep kind of the narrative flow going when I'm I'm cranking a little, uh, you know, hold steady or something like that. Um, I think for guys and and women who are writing poetry and prose poetry, I can see a more direct link between being musical and and writing. I mean, I think the stuff I I write, it's definitely rhythmic, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's meant to be read out loud. Um, I cannot listen to music. You obviously don't have sensory integration disorder or ADD because you were able to, <laughs> I cannot filter. So I can't listen to music. I used to think, you know, as, as a kid, yeah, you're supposed to listen to music, man. You're like Jack Kerouac, man. You're supposed to be blasting crazy bop jazz and, and writing on a giant roll of toilet paper. Um, <laughs> but that's not for me, but I would say, sure. Um, I would love to write a music novel. You know, I would love to yeah. do that. Um, but I'm, I don't know how much impact it has had. Um, when I played music, I tried to write songs and could not do it. Just really, you wouldn't have listened to my songs because they had stupid words. And I say that without apology. They were dumb. And I, gave, I, I just can't do it, man. Can't do question, it. All right, then question for you. You're not a poet, but what did mm-hmm. you think about Bob Dylan winning, I believe it was a Nobel Prize in literature a few years ago. There were a lot of poets I knew who were pissed off about that because I, I, mean, I don't know. 
I don't know. I think baby boomers around the world. So that's probably had a lot more to do with that than anything else. Right. Yeah. He is the most important person we can think of. Let's give him every award. Um, <laughs> I know. Yes. The poets were not happy with that. We did not ask Ma that question, but uh, she'd probably be okay with it, I think. But I, I mean, he's got, they got plenty of awards, you know? So, yeah, let's, um, I mean, we, let's get to this real quick. But um, man, we want to talk about Katie Dang, um, which is also, we, talk about last name it's a pretty fun one just to say katie dang and just like hang on to that g but then she she's telling a story also set in the la scene um where she grew up back in the day then returning to it it's our correspondent piece um from our backstage pass event at story Ford in september of 21 and troy wright who plays with aka bell and tree people awesome guitar player accompanies her um in a really cool manner so we've got some punk rock I don't know, yeah. memory lane stuff going? It's a, it's a punk rock reunion, I think. That's um, where we go, punk rock reunion. And uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to, to give a little plug if you uh, did not get a chance to see that backstage pass. It's something we do at Storyfort every time. Coming up in March. 23rd at 23rd, the 10th Street Station. We'll be doing another one. And it's a really great event. If you have a chance and you happen to be near Boise or even not, show up. Yep. We should get to our guests. So let's Ma. turn it over to them, Ma, and then later Katie and Troy on the uh, guitar, on the axe. All right. Well, Ma, Jay, Wynn, not to be mistaken with Christian Wynn. <laughs> Ma, Shay, Wynn, take it away. Ma, Shay, and Wynn, welcome to the Story Forward podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to see you on my Zoom. Um, you are the first poet other than my co-host Christian Wynn that we've had on any of our podcasts, I think, dating all the way back to the old uh, Story uh, Story Fort Presents podcast. Okay. I think so, I think so. But yeah, it's awesome to have a, a, a real poet, a genuine poet and a and musician as we discussed as we were leading into this whole thing. But Larry, continue on. Thank you for the segue. This season is about music and stories from the world of music. And we've got you on here, Ma, sort of a hybrid poet musician. Um, <laughs> what I want to talk to you about today, I know, you know, I've, I've interviewed you before at great length. And during that interview, it came up that you were very involved in music when you were young mm -hmm. uh, in Los Angeles during a time that I think was a very interesting and, and fertile uh, place for the arts and for music. And I'm since learning that music has really followed you and inspired you throughout your whole career and continues to be part of your life as you're right now juggling three bands with a grand total of nine names, nine letters, yes. <laughs> nine word with band names. Um, but so I guess to get started, um, I'm gonna take you all the way back to, you know, to when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to remember, was it South, but you grew up in the South Bay of Los Angeles? Um, no, actually, well, you mean as a young, young one? Um, yeah, I, yeah. Well, I was actually born in Massachusetts, um, uh, and my um, parents emigrated from Burma, mm -hmm. um, and I uh, grew up with music. My father, um, you know, in, in the 60s, just really got into, you know, music and played music for me while I was growing up. And so I grew up listening to Jimi Hendrix and Joni Mitchell and the Beatles. And I have to say my dad had pretty good taste in music. <laughs> um, and uh, he, you know, in various places that we lived as we moved across the United States, um, my dad tried to always have some kind of music room um, where he just had this big, you know, stereo system and just, obsessed with his records and uh my mother never really got into my dad's obsession with music but i did well so that's interesting and i'm, I'm guessing it's because your mother wasn't feeling it as much but he had to go to a room to listen to music hmm. it was well uh hmm, how do i say this <laughs> my dad had a rather obsessive quality and uh when he was into something he was really into something and music was one of the things uh that he loved and so he collected records and uh, my dad has passed away and I inherited his record collection. So I have, um, well, in addition to my own records, um, mm -hmm. just hundreds of records. And unfortunately, a lot of them are in our storage unit. Because uh. We don't have space for them here. I miss my record collection. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, 
That's the nice part about moving to rural Oregon. Plenty of room for all your records. Room for records. Oh, so Larry, you could have a music room. I kind of do, I guess. But I, the reason why I asked that is though, because, you know, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about homes that have music playing and homes that don't. Mm -hmm. And my home always has music playing, but it's throughout the whole house. Yeah. It's not a special nice. place that you go to listen to music. Um, I don't know. That just, it just occurred to me. That well, you, I mean, I guess he would usually what he, what my dad did was our, what was supposed to be like our family room. Mm -hmm. He would turn it into his music room. So, I mean, there was a sofa in there and we could hang out if we wanted to, but really it was kind of about my dad's music. And so right. anyone was in the family room, it, you were listening to music. Right. And I think that's interesting that that's kind of, of course, predates, you know, the Walkman. But like mm -hmm. I was just listening to and talking about the the advent of the the Walkman, and now basically it changed the way people listen to music. You have your own music. soundtrack going all the time, so it's your own little music room. Yeah. Well, uh, what it does ahead. by what it does by having a music room is it makes it an active thing. You know, it's it's an activity. What are you doing? I'm listening to music. Yeah. And I wonder how much that planted in you that music is something that isn't playing in the background. It's something that you're doing. Yeah, well, and one of the things too, I was really um, interested in lyrics. So I would, you know, of course, you know, read the lyrics um, on the album um, and look at the album cover art and um, try to memorize uh, some of the songs. And um, for some reason, um, it, I, I could remember Simon and Garfunkel's lyrics, but I, I don't know. And so my dad would say, okay, sing, sing that one Simon Garfunkel song. <laughs> That's so awesome. torturous to my family, torturous to my family, I'm sure. <laughs> so as you're growing up and you're going into the room and you're listening to music, and not to be an old man, but I was thinking when you said that about how great it was then, when you listen to music, you would hold the record cover in your hand and you would look at the inner sleeve and read the lyrics. And something is lost when you're listening to an MP3, but that's my own little campaign. Um, I agree. As you're growing, it seems like you're, you know, you, you've got a lot of art flying around you. You've got the music and it's interesting that you're into the lyrics because you later become a poet. Yes. Tell me how these interests develop in you. Do they develop in a parallel? Does one feed the other? Uh, yes, I would definitely say that um, one feeds the other. And I, Christian, like you, I started writing in fourth grade um, and nice. <laughs> I was writing little rhyming poems and mm -hmm. um i had a teacher who was um very supportive and she said do you know you're a poet and i was like really oh that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was yeah i was you know we had the dr seuss era early on but then like the shell silverstein was pretty influential oh, yeah. you know for sure yeah. and it's like i can i can dabble a little bit <laughs> shell silverstein had a band that's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I can't remember the name of it, but yeah. Wait, he wrote a very prominent country song. What was it? Shoot. Oh, I think you guys discussed this at the bar fight here in, at Treeport. Yeah. Came up. Yeah. I can't it'll come up to me later. Um, <laughs> I want to know too. <laughs> Julie would know. Julie Hahn, who was arguing and debating with Larry about the, the, uh, the strength and weaknesses of the story song. Yeah, at that event. Um, so you were literally a poet and you didn't know it until your teacher I, told you. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so, you know, I, I kept a journal, um, you know, of course, very dramatic um, over the years. And, you know, eventually we moved to Southern California. Mm -hmm. And I... Um, uh, went to junior high and high school and, um, you know, I was writing. Um, and, you know, I, I like to joke about this because I think there was this part of me that even though I loved writing and also as a young person, I wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be a teacher one day, um, a writer and a teacher. But I think there was also that dreamy part of me that was um, a focus on like, I want to be a musician. <laughs> so I took piano. Um, later, I took guitar lessons. Um, just uh, I tried a lot of different instruments. And, um, you know, and it um, I realized, oh, maybe I'm a little bit better at writing than playing music, but I'm still going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And how much of that? So I think you're around the same age as me. I'm, uh-huh. So I graduated high school in 83. Uh-huh. How much of you deciding I'm just going to do it was a result of what was happening around you at the time in Southern California? Uh, you mean as far as music? Yes. Well, so, um, you know, I went to high school in um, Los Alamitos in Orange County. And when I was in junior high, I was, you know, listening to Led Zeppelin, you know, my friends were, you know, we're all like all listening kind of the same thing, Boston, Jethro Tull, and I had all those records. And um, I think I had a Van Halen poster on my wall and (laughs) all that stuff, you know. And um, then um, this is a story I've told before, because it's I remember it, how I got into punk rock was when I was in high school, I had a friend who um, we just loved talking about music. So, you know, during lunchtime, you know, we'd just talk about different bands. And um, one summer he, he had gone to London. And then one, when he came back that after the summer, um, he had a mohawk. So before he left, he had this long, blonde, beautiful hair, and he was a surfer. <laughs> and I had a little crush on him, um, and he didn't know it. Um, and then he came back, and then he had this mohawk, and it was purple or something. And I was just like, "What happened?" Ma, <laughs> like, you're I'm changing your life right now. And then he pulled out, you know, um, uh, the Sex Pistols' first album, never, never mind the Bullocks. Here's mm-hmm. the Sex Pistols, um, and I was like whoa and he, and then i don't know i guess he had a cassette and so he said listen to it ma and i listened i'm like wow <laughs> and then um and then that was kind of the beginning and i just started listening and trying to get my friends my my four friends in high school <laughs> to listen to um different bands with me and we i talked um my older sister who did not really share the same music taste as myself to drive us to the whiskey a go-go to see the mm. dead kennedys oh wow dang yeah and uh i i don't know i can't remember what year but it was in high school so i don't remember so, um, a couple things um first of all um i wish i still had the writer's grotto email because i would tell them i would send a general email and tell them you had van halen posters on your wall in high school <laughs> <laughs> um secondly so I'm curious what sort of, how do I put this? You said you only had four friends, but my high school was less than 20 miles from yours. Uh, oh. And if someone showed up with a purple mohawk at my high school at that time, it would have been social suicide. <laughs> it would have just like, okay, I guess I'm just not gonna have friends anymore or maybe these special three people. <laughs> Did you consider when it sounds like, you know, you heard the sex pills and it really spoke to you and it really changed your outlook on life. Was there any fallout for you or did you just have new friends? You know what? I was kind of a, like a geeky kid anyways. And so very um, shy and introverted. I wasn't, I, well, let's just say I wasn't a popular, one of the popular kids. Um, and so I think in a way that, sort of thing didn't really matter to me um because i was already mm. kind of on the outside anyways and uh yeah so i just it got really into a new wave and um you know i was um i wrote for the school paper so well for a very short while i was actually the editor of my high school paper but mm. i got rid of the sports section and, uh, <laughs> and i doubled the music section so i was writing you know these are not very, probably very, very well written articles about Elvis Costello and Devo. And then of course, you know, all the jocks were writing Devo sucks or spray painted on the lockers. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> the culture wars back then. Yeah. The culture wars back then. Exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm curious. It was culture wars and people don't realize that. And the other thing is, um, I mean, Mock, Chris hasn't met you in person, but you're a very small person. And I remember that the idea of going into Hollywood and going to see a punk show, it was kind of a scary scene. Were you ever intimidated or scared? You know what? I guess that was the kind of punk rock part of myself. I wanted to, because I was so into music, I wanted to see the band. So I would, you know, go straight up to the stage, you know, just 
you know, squeezing, making my way through all the, you know, um, people like slam dancing or whatever. And mm-hmm. um, I would sit up on the stage. And I think because I am only five feet tall, um, the bands never really said anything. And I would just sit up there and get this great view. <laughs> and so I was able to see all these bands at different clubs, um, you know, front row and center on stage. That's awesome. Well, and it also helped. I wrote for Flipside. Do you know Flipside? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I interviewed a lot of bands back then. And yeah. So Flipside, was it like a, a music magazine? In, music magazine, in, down yeah. Down in LA, okay, cool. It was a pretty prominent one. Who founded that? Um, oh, God. Oh. It was someone who endured, I thought. Yeah, oh, Al, Flipside, and Hudley. Alan Hudley. Okay. Alan Hudley. Wow, I can't remember. Nice. I can't remember that. <laughs> but it's, it sounds like you pretty quickly, and, and I don't know if it was ambition or just comfort, you pretty quickly became part of the scene. I'm sure uh, the bands must have known the little girl sitting on the stage. Uh, yeah, people knew who I was. Um, <laughs> or at least recognized me. Maybe they didn't know my name. Well, so the thing is, when I... Um, moved out of my parents' house, I think it was like, I was almost 19 years old. Um, I moved into um, this kind of artist's house, a tiny little two bedroom house in North Long Beach. And it was just like, we called it the Grisham house. Um, That's actually what I was writing about last night. And uh, it was filled with dancers and musicians and writers and artists. And we were all, all just doing things outside in the street and having you know theme parties and just um kind of living this artist life and and when i started well i started in high school but of course you know after i moved out of my parents house um you know went to a lot more shows and i would go to this club called the anti-club i mean i went to a lot of clubs um and i felt like i had sort of found and it wasn't just punk rock it was like art punk and you know, post-punk later. And um, I felt like I had found this group that I felt comfortable with, like the scene mm-hmm. that, that I felt spoke to me that I didn't really, like I never felt like I fit in at high school. And I mean, yeah. And did you know yet what your place in that world was or are you just in the world? Know my place? Well, um, I guess, I fit in as um, as a poet and you know okay. as as a writer because I was doing inter- a lot of interviews. Um, but I also started a zine um, called Lemon Fingers Emerge, and um, I um, it was just a little staple together zine. But because so many of the musicians also considered themselves poets, because there wasn't such a division like you know these days like i'm a musician i'm a poet but back then it was you know um yeah. you know we were all doing stuff and we um, all did stuff and so uh i published x scenes poetry um d boone from the minuteman um yeah. you know uh <laughs> some poets that you might you may have heard of amy gersler and david trinidad and and it was just kind of a and I just remember going to clubs and you know having my little zine and selling it for a dollar um and yeah it was really fun do you still have do you still have some copies of that I do I do actually yeah that's awesome yeah we well Larry started a zine called oh, I to have some co- much later this was 93 what was your zine called it was called the zealot it was about motorcycles oh. all right <laughs> I did write a couple of uh things you did that's those. right but oh, Cool. Yeah, but that's cool. So yeah, maybe what like what was the the poetry scene like at that time? And it was kind of pre-slam poetry. Oh yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least in on the West, I think it probably started at, at what are the New Yorican, I think it back that's the, the legend that it started in New York City, um, at this place called the New Yorican. That's mm-hmm. I think. Anyway, that said, I know in Seattle the poetry slam scene kind of like came along in the early 90s, mid 90s, and then became, it kind of blended with the music scene, but what was it like in the early mid 80s down there in LA with the poetry and music kind of combining, like you, you know, within your zine, for instance? Yeah, so, you know, I, I lived in Long Beach, as I mentioned, and um, I studied at Cal State Long Beach. I was in there, you know, getting a degree in English um, with the emphasis in poetry, <laughs> creative writing. 
And so Long Beach actually had its own, <clears throat> excuse me, um, music scene, uh, sorry, um, poetry, you know, community that was, you know, really tight knit and doing lots of readings. Um, and then Los Angeles had the Beyond Baroque. Well, I mean, you know, you know, the LA area is so huge, right? So there's just all these different, um, you know, what, what do I, like poetry, I mean, communities, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, I would say. Um, and so I felt like I was, you know, pretty active in the Long Beach poetry scene. Um, and then also the LA poetry scene, but I was a little younger than some of the poets um, who I published. And uh, so, uh, yeah. Um, and when did you cross over and become part of a band? Okay, um, so back to the Grisham house. Um, I remember this, I remember, actually remember this pretty clearly. We had come back from a show at the Ante Club um, and we're all sitting around and then someone said, hey, why don't we start a band? Hmm. And then we're, we're, we're of course drinking beer. And then all of us, then someone said, well, Richard knows how to play guitar. He actually even has one. <laughs> and, then, and then it's like, okay, so who wants to do what? And then Adrian, my friend Adrian, best friend um, said, I'll be the singer, which, and we were all like, okay, please, because you're the only one who could sing. And then Mark and I, my other best friend, Mark Dutcher, um, he said, um, I'll play drums. And I said, I will too. And so, um, and then um, we had, two different bass players, Teresa and Tom at different times. And it was really funny because we didn't have money, of course, because <laughs> just um, living on, you know, um, not very much money. I found um, a drum kit, a kid's drum kit at a thrift shop because we went thrift store shopping like everybody else. And um, I took the kit apart and then we got some beer kegs and then those big, you know, water, empty water bottles. And so we constructed our own, um, like kind of percussion line. <laughs> and uh, we had this really uh, DIY um, drum kit percussion. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we made it work. Yeah, what was the name of your band? Well, this is a funny part. Okay, so <laughs> like, well, so what should we call our band? Oh, maybe this, maybe that. And then someone said, Pearls Before Swine. And we're like, oh, that works. And then we did not know that there was, because of course this is pre-internet, that there was a band in the 60s, I think in the 60s, called yes. Pearls Before Swine. So a couple times that we played, some people came <laughs> to our show thinking it was like Tom Rapp's Pearls Before Swine. And Which, it was just like, who? That's yeah. what the, and I looked at, because I Googled it last night and that band came up and it's one yeah. of those like 60s, like yeah. men down at the pub who made a band type of bands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I think they had a pretty hardcore yeah. following. Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, <laughs> so so that that sometimes was kind of a little bit of an issue, but. Um, so yeah. At that point, when you played gigs with Pearls Before Swine, other than sitting on the stage, was that the first time you had performed for an audience or had you been doing poetry in front of people? I have been doing poetry. Okay. Yeah. So did it seem like an extension of that or something yeah, different? Yeah, you know, I mean, I've kind of always felt that everything I've done is just, there's overlapping and, you know, just it all kind of works together. Um, I also um, uh, was interested in performance art and Cal State Long Beach actually had performance art classes and I failed one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and people are like, how do you fail performance art? Yeah. How awesome. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was obsessed with Laurie Anderson. Yeah. And so I think I was too much like Laurie Anderson. Oh, it was riveting. I don't remember, but, um, but <laughs> you, uh, you know that old story. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty good it's taken me a I, second to recover from that one <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, well i'm curious here i'm not sure what's going on this. Oh. <laughs> so. how do you fail performance art okay. um so how many shows did you guys play there's something oh. on soundcloud with songs you know well yes and it's so funny because tom graves our bass player um, he was the archivist, um, thankfully, because 
none of us hung on to anything. In fact, we didn't even have, we went, we actually did a recording and um, all of us lost the recordings. And then Tom, bless his heart, was the only person who hung on to everything, flyers, um, our cassettes, our recordings. And he said, he contacted us, maybe it was five years ago, or I, I can't remember, but he contacted us and said, I want to make a CD. So it's actually a CD. He goes, I want to make a CD. I will pay for it. And um, I would, I think it'd be a really fun project. And we're like, sure, that'd be great. So that's how it's on. Um, SoundCloud. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds good. Yeah. I, I, oh, I thought so. Is. Yeah. You know, I was expecting something a little more kind of sparksy or oingo boingo y, you know, uh -huh. just a, a lot of dissonance. Uh -huh. But no, it's pretty guitar heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty guitar. Richard, actually, Richard Tabor, excellent guitarist. Yeah, it's really great. Um, well, sure, he uh, was a guy who already knew how to play. Yeah, he was a guy that knew how to play. Well, and Tom knew how to play, too. Tom knew how to play bass, so. Uh, so, yeah. Well, I'm curious, though, at that kind of point, how did the music sort of inform your po your poetics and your poetry writing? I mean, obviously, we were, we were into the lyrics previously growing up, you know, um, but just kind of maybe your sensibility as a poet, it did it shift yeah. much? Well, you know, I, I have to say Adrian de la Pena, Adrian um, wrote the lyrics and Mark, uh, well, he was Mark Housley at the time, now Mark Dutcher, he um, wrote the lyrics as well. I, I think there was a part of me that um, I had did my poetry and I know I just am contradicting myself because I just said it all kind of wove together but I, I didn't really I don't know I'm trying to now this is the part I don't remember I don't know why I didn't write lyrics for pearls before swine I think it was just kind of like yeah Adrian writes the lyrics uh, mainly the lyrics maybe because he was a singer and um, but I it informed my poetry just as far as um, you know music being such again a huge part of my life i felt like i could read it all different types of places too including clubs and parties and warehouse parties and you know etc etc so yeah. i guess that was a way that you know they, there was that crossover with my poetry and with music yeah so the career you've carved out for yourself as a poet do you feel this may sound kind of out of left field but it's sort of building on what you just said do you feel like you have a traditional career as a poet, or do you think it's more of an avant-garde type of career? Not the poetry itself, but the things you do and the way you do it. Yeah, well, I don't even know if I'd use the word career per se, but like I think my um, trajectory has been, okay. um, you know, kind of just, I mean, it sounds a little cheesy, but I'll just say it, just kind of like doing my own thing. like following my own path and uh collab collaborating um i don't know if you've um if i've talked about that but you know collaboration oh, yeah. is yeah such a huge part of what i do um and have always been interested in collaboration uh so yeah i didn't get an mfa um so i guess that is part of the traditional career of a poet um so um, you know, I, I t taught, you know, I started teaching and kept working, you know, um, through the years. And, uh, I guess I've kind of, what appeals to me is not being a part of one certain poetry school, you know, I, cause I am really interested in all the, you know, so many different types of art mm -hmm. and different types of poetry. So I really, um, don't feel like this um, compelled to be a part of like one, you know, school or. Uh... Well, and, and you said, I'm sort of, I guess I'm not surprised, but you really stressed just now that you like to collaborate and writing poems really isn't a collaborative art form. So is that one of the reasons why you've continued doing music even up to this day, more than I actually knew you did because you're working on three projects simultaneously yeah. right now. Well, yeah, not, not super active right now, but um, right, right. you know what? I, um, yes, writing is, can be a solo activity, but I also want to say that I am really interested in collaborative writing projects. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I, in fact, 
uh, next spring doing a little shout out. I'm writing, I'm teaching a three week workshop on collaborating in the arts um, at the writing salon. And I'm really excited about it because, um, you know, I've done and love to collaborate with visual artists and musicians and writers. In fact, I'm just, I'm really excited about this. I've been working on a two year project with Megan Wilson called Wall and Response. And um, did I tell you about it? Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe not. Um, but you know, Clarion Alley in San Francisco? No, I don't. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the murals, all the murals. Mm -hmm. Christian, you might not know about Clarion Alley, but um, mm -hmm. it's this alley that has a long history, um, amazing murals by uh, Bay Area artists, San Francisco artists. Oh, cool. um, well, yeah, Bay Area artists, muralists. And uh, Megan invited me to do a two year collaboration where I chose 16 poets, um, four poets per mural, four murals. And we made four films, poetry films. And now uh, next year, um, starting in March, we're going to have a show at the San Francisco Public Library. You oh, know, cool. yeah, That's so cool. I'm really excited about that. So That's awesome. all that to say, collaboration is definitely part of my my process, my creative process. And yeah, and I'm curious then too, as a, a I, I do write the poetry at times, at least um, I, I think I do, but I never really, I don't teach a lot of poetry, but I teach you know, creative writing and other genres. But I, I'm curious, like, well, how much, a couple of things on the teaching front, how much, or do your students know how cool you were back in the day? Back in, <laughs> and, and do they know, um, I guess, about the, your, your, your punk rock past and kind of, or and how do you even- Does it have any music? capital? <laughs> it <would> um, <laughs> you know what you know i have to say teaching you know it 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 makes me laugh a little bit because it reminds me sometimes of how i was like when i was 19 20 21 and you know and i probably was you know like i didn't know maybe how cool my teachers were right because right, you're so right. young you think you're cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, no, but yeah, do you bring, I mean, do you incorporate music much in your teaching of poetry? Oh, definitely. For that is a, in fact, I just taught a workshop at the, for the grotto and oh. on Sunday and I created a playlist and, um, Tom helped me and, and I love teaching poetry, um, workshops that incorporate music and soundtracks and, uh, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. It's a, then it's, it's a, I, it's got to be kind of a tough go to teach poetry because it is, I don't know, what, what's your, what, what, I mean, what's the key that you try to impart to your, your students? If you have a couple of keys, maybe, because I always wondered personally, just like, what can be taught outside of a bit of form, I suppose, um, maybe in a bit of, you know, I guess, heart, I don't know, what, what else do you bring to the You know poetry? what, I would say if I could sum well, one main thing I like to talk about is how we can be inspired by all the arts, mm. you know? So, um, so when I've taught, um, or when I teach, um, poetry workshops, especially I, that's why I really like, you know, try to bring in music and performance art and video and share links, um, you know, to different visual artists. I think that um, we can really get inspiration from, you know, all the arts and uh, yeah. So I think that's one of the main things I try to talk about and incorporate into my teaching. That's a good question. One thing I find inspiring listening to you talk, Ma, is that when it comes to art forms, nothing's off the table for you. You, you just said, oh, we're making some films. Oh, I'm gonna play some music. I'm gonna write some poetry. Um, as we come to a close, why don't you share with our listeners the music that you're working on? I mean, don't actually play the music, but tell us what you're doing right now musically. Yeah. So um, I would say uh, there have been three projects um, that I've worked on. And um, in 2011, um, I had my first performance with Amanda Chaudhary for Pitta of the Mind. Um, it's not pita. People always say pita like pita bread. It's pita, P-I-T-T-A, uh, with Amanda Chaudhary. And we um, 
over the years have had a duo. Um, Amanda plays uh, keyboards and synthesizers and is an amazing musician and composer. And I just feel so lucky. And we've done a lot of shows here in the Bay Area. And, um, and then around um, 2018, uh, Evan Karp, who's a poet and also a musician, a writer and a musician, and everyone knows who Evan is. Um, poor guy, yep. Amazing Evan. Um, so we started a duo called Vata and the Vine. And um, he plays, uh, Evan plays kalimba and electronics. And, um, and then the third is my husband, Thomas Scandura, um, who's been in many bands, including the Molecules in the Bay Area. Um, I, my dream has been to collaborate with Tom. <laughs> and I'm like, honey, wouldn't that be awesome? Pandemic. <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't know. And so we got invited to do a performance at the Albany Bulb. Do you know the Albany Bulb? That's East Bay. Oh. Oh, okay, East Bay. Yeah, East Bay. Um, outdoors area and um, our friends John and Deborah had a series um, out there where the musicians are playing, you know, with the limited audience, like 15 people, um, and asked, you know, if I wanted to perform um, with uh, Dan Plonzi, another awesome Bay Area um, musician. And we said yes, and Tom and I had a duo um, performance. Um, uh, well, actually, I'm sorry, um, Dan played with us uh, called Kafa and It's Kind. So it's kind of my Ayurvedic trilogy <laughs> projects collab of collaborations um, with musicians. And so, but, you know, things are a little bit on hold, but. Um, well, except for the last year, you know, I'm thinking about, and this is a whole nother conversation, but the different ways that COVID has um, changed relationships between couples and one of them is that you guys are stuck together and you can play all the music you want now i know <laughs> <laughs> so and tom had a great time so he he was like oh okay we can do this again <laughs> that's great um yeah so you know as we kind of wrap things up like larry said we'd love to hear about where to find your stuff, um, okay. final words of wisdom, um, projects, you know, you're working on and we should go check out and so should our hundreds of thousands of listeners, right? <laughs> Yay! <laughs> or at least um, our parents. I have, I have a lot of stuff up on my website, uh, moshanewin.com. And uh, Amanda, uh, Amanda's website is um, Amanda Chaudhary, C-H- um, a u d h a r y dot com, and she has um, she has a new album out called the Meow Meow, um, and uh, it's great, um, and I highly recommend checking that out. And she has some Pitta of the Mind links. And if you just, cool. um, well, if you Google Pitta of the Mind, a lot of Ayurvedic links will come up. But if you Google <laughs> Pitta of the Mind band, <laughs> um, you can see some of our videos and. Uh, Evan and I have a, um, a, well, he actually put out an album uh, last year, and uh, that's on um, Bandcamp. And uh, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we, we did a little research. Larry sent over a couple of links, and I went a little bit deep dive into the Pitta of the Mind stuff. And what is that crazy round thing she plays like the one where she's like pushed your hand above oh, that's it a, like, that's a theremin a theremin i was just yeah. gonna say that but i didn't want to sound stupid i have a theremin I, too i we love we're big fans of ther the theremin I, i'm a big fan but i was like is that a theremin i, I yeah, just, I've yeah. seen one i just have heard them and heard people talk about them. but that was a, it's a pretty cool collaboration overall so oh thanks and, yeah and and before you go ma tell the listeners the new book too or the newish book yeah, yeah. So Storage Unit for the Spirit House um, is a poetry, full-length poetry collection, which is published by Omnidon. And um, it came out in fall um, 2020, October 2020. And I've been doing readings on Zoom. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, you know, th you know uh, celebrating the book. And yeah, I mean, I feel, uh, I mean, I do feel grateful that we have this way to communicate, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and until we can meet in person, um, in real life 
together again. Um, this is what we have and, you know, thankful for it. And um, yeah, doing readings and I'm working on a new collection right now, a new manuscript. And um, yeah, that's what's going on. And All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on yeah, our podcast. Thank you, Larry. We'll yeah, thank you. Make the pitch to get you up to Boise for a story for it and tree for it at some point. It'd be pretty fun. I'd love that. Yeah. And awesome. Awesome. So uh, we're going to do something a little different um, than we've seen so far tonight. This is actually an article that I wrote for Rocker Magazine about eight or nine years ago. But it's a true story, so I think it still counts as part of Story Fort. We'll see what you guys think. Um, happy Equinox. Yeah, happy Equinox. Any other events we're celebrating today? Birthdays, weddings, anniversaries? No? Cody's here. Oh yeah, happy Tree Fort, everyone. Trying to keep it safe. Keep it sane. Keep it sane. Whatever. Still rock out. Yeah, Like we do. Alright, let's see how this sounds. Way louder. Troy has already played once today with AKA Bell at the main stage. And his band, Troyject, which kicks ass, will be playing tonight at 8.20 at the Western Collective. Am I yelling? Check, check, check. I feel yep. like I'm yelling. <laughs> um, yeah, let's, let's turn this up. All right, All right go. I've got to keep my hair short because I really need it. as you see to the menace of the crowd. Maybe you've been brainwashed by that bullshit on TV. The only way you prejudice and use your mind to see. For better or for worse, Ill Repute's music was the soundtrack to my high school life. There's still punk rockers everywhere, in countries spanning the globe, aged from pre-teens to senior citizens. The look, if not the ideology, has been an influence on every generation since the 70s. Some of the best bands who laid the foundation came from the white trash second generation of Los Angeles in the 80s. Growing up in the suburbs of L.A. during that time, we had plenty to be pissed off about. I mean, what could be worse than Reagan? But punk rock truly did change our lives. We spent our nights at shows populated by the disenfranchised youth of El La 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 Land. This was before alternative weeklies, much less computers. You got your information from flyers and record stores and talking to people at school or on the bus. Other weirdos in the know. At the time, we didn't know that the bands we were seeing would come to be considered integral pieces in the history of punk rock. They're just who was playing that night. They served our needs as pissed off kids, out to cure the ills that beset society while trying to somehow establish ourselves in it. Lots of the shows were put on by one promoter, Golden Voice. Their signature Xerox flyers spread throughout the Southland. Each bill was stacked with bands and cost around 10 bucks. Those flyers lived on my teenage walls and now in the house that I own, a testament to their continued importance in my life. So a few years ago, when my friend, who's also from Southern California, told me Golden Voice was throwing a 30th anniversary party with three nights of shows at the Santa Monica Civic, my immediate response was, we have to go. Didn't matter that we live in Boise, Idaho, have careers, families, young kids, we had to go. What did matter were the bands who were playing. The Adolescence, X, Bad Religion, The Descendants, and Ill Repute. There's no way I'm gonna miss this. We had to fucking go. The flyer for the shows put up on the fridge, our old men bribed into agreement, a new snowboard for one, beer camp for another, and children prepped for their mother's absence. Tickets were bought with the service fees costing more than the entire amount we used to spend. The pull of the tides drew us back to the west coast. Back to LA, back to Santa Monica. We stayed on Ocean Boulevard and we had a sneak path to the Civic a half a block away. 
Our perfectly shitty motel room had a light in the bathroom that involved screwing it in and out to turn it on and off. But hey, how else are you supposed to stay when you're seeing punk rock? On the first night, we gather in front of the mirror like two, two teenage girls with dueling eyeliners, trying to figure out what to wear. What's the crowd gonna be like? Who's actually gonna go to this thing? So far, our only sighting was three young punk girls all dolled up, and our thought was, oh shit, we are so fucking old. But we don our dressed-down uniforms, which haven't changed that much over the years. T-shirt of our favorite band. But which band tonight? A flannel shirt, but plaid or leopard print. Jeans, but black or blue. And shoes, vans or docks. We head over to the show and find a maze wrapping itself around the entrance like a ride at Disneyland for punks. The first person we meet is a mother of three teenage boys who rode the bus from Arizona just to see X. We understand completely. Then we spot a girl, probably 13, in a homemade adolescent sweatshirt, looking excited and scared. We know how she feels, too. We are home. The familiarity of the scene is giddying. Once inside, with drinks in hand, the auditorium opens up before us and we're welcomed into its fold. The crowd ranges from teenagers to gray hairs, from dressed up to downplayed, with everyone just stoked to be there. It's still where the outsiders go to fit in. Adolescents are the first band on stage. As with many of the bands this weekend, they perform the songs that constantly play in my head, but I forgot who did the songs. It's like the soundtrack to my life. They open up with the perfect number, no way. Those are the first words to come out of the sound system. Like a well-oiled clock, the pit opens up in front and round and round they go. So the shows are loosely grouped by theme each night. Friday's the punk and roll headlined by X. Xene dances like the devil doll and DJ Bonebreak drums the rhythms of LA. There are no angels, there are devils and men. They play for all of us and we shout back. The girls always singing along with John Doe. We're desperate, get used to it. They play it all, everything we want to hear. At first, it feels like you don't want to look too closely at the folks on stage, because if you don't, it could be 30 years ago. Their attitude and demeanor seem just the same, but if you look hard enough, you see the lines that mark us all. The droop of the jowls, sag of the skin, it's goddamn wrinkles. But in the lights and on the stage, everyone looks just like we remember. On the floor, I wind up next to two kids, about 10 and 12. They're under the watchful eye of their dad. You can tell he's an old punk rocker like the rest of us. But the younger boy, kid, looks a little bit terrified at the bodies crashing around and the sudden sways of the crowd that move us along. When a second pit opens on our right, the dad moves over into that new space. We look at each other, and in the language of the pit, it's established that he can trust me. I can take over protecting the left side of his kids while he covers the right. <laughs> it's sealed with a nod, and we do our duties while the band plays on. We used to protect each other like this. Now we protect each other's kids. We return on Saturday for a more politically inclined evening, featuring TSOL, Youth Brigade, and the convictional questioning of bad religion. Kids still love bad religion, which I take as a promising sign. Sunday nights full of light-hearted hardcore with the Dickies, the Vandals, and the Descendants. There's also a surprise appearance by the original members of Black Flag with the inimitable Keith Morris on vocals. There couldn't be a celebration of Golden Boy shows without Keith Morris. 
He stalks and screams and makes it clear that he's the heart of it all, right here in front of us. The crowd is blown away and phone cameras abound as people try to be still and still rock out. At the end, Chuck Dukowski lets out a yell that shakes the fucking walls. Sometimes the best things are left unsaid, and the purest expression is just noise, plain and simple. Throughout the course of the three nights, I don't see a single person from the past I expected to run into. I'd imagine a sort of misfits high school reunion, but there are no identifiable faces, although there are plenty of recognizable types. It's a friendly crowd, but not quite familial. Where are Ted and Anton and Guillermo and Eve and Gina and Doug and Veronica? I thought it wouldn't make sense to be there without seeing all my old friends, but it still does. I do wonder more than ever where they are. I try not to wonder why they're not there. When ill repute takes the stage, I am done in. The years melt away and I am back. Shout along to every chorus and favorite line. I'm surprised I remember, remember all the words, but I do. Man's hair is gone, but their chops are on, and they carry themselves the same way they did all those years ago. Midway through a rousing rendition of Book and its cover, I tear up and I have trouble containing my emotions. Everything comes back to me that once made me into that fucked up kid who needed this music. The decaying family, the inability to fit in, the awkwardness of being too smart for my own goddamn good, and the rage at the injustice that I saw everywhere, all leading me to find release in music that was just as furious as I was. I wasn't even an adult yet, not then. I was just a kid. Those are turbulent times when the hormones of adolescence coalesce with the new responsibilities, driving a car, getting the grades to get into a college that will get me the fuck away from all of this. I stand there, I see myself, older but still able to inhabit this space. I hear the words and music that are still not only part of me, but that make sense of things that don't make sense in any other context. It's the poetry of my life. I hadn't heard these songs since before I left home, went to college, fell in love, worked at real jobs, lost friends and family members, and started my own family. I still see the evils of the world and I'm still fucking pissed. And tonight ill repute speaks to me. Does that mean I never grew up? Or just that I kept my core values intact? Whatever it meant that then, I realize it still means now. And in that moment, it is absolutely overwhelming. Oh, wait, there's one more page. So it's quite something to be part of a subculture, right? An individual that's a component piece of something bigger to take an active role in a small corner of history, even if it is just pop culture. It wasn't done on purpose or knowing what it would become. It was just an outlet we found and threw ourselves into. But it really fucking mattered. That music really fucking mattered. So when the last show's over and the crowd dissipates, heading off into the night, there's promises made to come back again in 10 years for the 40th anniversary shows. We make our way back to the known and towards the future, our ears ringing with the sounds that sustain us. We certainly never thought we'd be where we are today 30 years ago, but I'm glad we're older. I'm glad we made it. People say we're not living like the way we should. Listen to them, always done the best I could Cause the way I am is the way I like And I won't change for anyone My morals are good, my values are right Doesn't mean I'm bad if I have fun It's the way I look, I don't mean shit It's the way that I always count I try to be nice, I'm always polite But still you go and have your day
Okay, welcome back, everyone. I, I hope you enjoyed listening to Ma tell stories half as much as we enjoyed it. It was, as I keep saying, I can't think of another word besides delightful. She is delightful, as was Katie, as was Troy. Um, what a cool episode. And um, it wants us to keep the, I guess, the story going, keep the music going. Um, we want to thank Brett Battistain and Jared Bostrom for editing and producing and hosting us on the eavesdrop, E-A-S-E-Drop.com. You can find all kinds of uh, stuff at their cool podcast network, including Story Forward and a dozen or so other awesome podcasts. And it's a crazy podcast, I have to say. Yeah. And Larry, <laughs> you're you're like the social media guy. <laughs> where do we find the thing? No, the social media. But if you want to find us and argue with us and say nasty things about us, you can no. do it either on our Facebook group page, Story Forward, or you can go to a Twitter or Instagram at Story Forward. Uh, if you want to find me, I'm also on those platforms at that Larry Rose and Mr. Wynn, you ready to sh- are you ready to share your platform with people or no? Are you still keeping a secret? Hashtag Lonely Idaho. That's lonely it. Idaho. I don't know. It's, I can't remember my my actual handle. That's why I can't. Oh, that, you know, so. <laughs> it's not a function of like Chris Wynn is this very mysterious private person. No, I think it's just, just Chris can't remember. Wynn. It's just look up Christian underscore Wynn. I think it is. Like I, anyway, I don't post post a lot on the Twitter or the Instagram. I do it more, but I also. The Instagram goes to the Facebook, and you know, I'm I'm a oh gosh, a moderate user of the right. I mean, we're we're old, and you know, we're not really of that generation. <laughs> we, we try our best. Um, so before we head out, uh, can you give us an idea of what comes next week? Because I don't have it in front of me. What does come next week? Next week, I've got a bunch of papers in front of me that say, well, one of them says, "Your man Bill, Bill Crandall, oh, okay. Mr. Rolling Stone." Mr. Rolling Stone, Mr. Sirius XM, Mr. Pandora, Bill Crandall next week will talk about uh, carving out a career in music on the journalism side yeah. and how that morphed into the content side. I know, and he's he goes, he's social media. I mean, he's like, he has kids who are yeah. into TikTok and he's like, cool with that. If you hear like a Stone Roses song on TikTok, he's like, cool. Yeah, he, he definitely, he, unlike us, he evolved along with the world. Yes. <laughs> and it paid off in Spain. He's, he's got a good, he has a good job. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know what he's done? He has kept the story moving forward. I mean, I think we're doing it. But I we're, think we're uh, doing it. But before we, we want to remind you, until next time, keep that story moving forward.